Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello. Welcome to our first edition of the Space Boffins podcast for 2024. Woohoo! I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Now, Rich, since we started in July 2011, this means we're now completing or heading towards completing our 13th year of the podcast. So the woohoo! Yes, it was indeed. And I'm hoping, you know, there's not going to be an Apollo 13 moment in in this final run up to that 13th year. But if there is, I'm sure we'll be fine because one of our guests today was the lead flight director for Apollo 12, 15 and 17. Yes, it's Jerry Griffin. And we'll also touch on a certain extremely important switch used during the Apollo 12 mission that wasn't exactly common knowledge. Never heard of the switch. (laughs) But I trusted John Aaron when he said, try us, see the hawk. And I turned, Jerry Carr was the uh, Capcom, and I turned to Jerry. And when I said, have him try us, see the hawk. And I could see Jerry, and he didn't know what it was either. <laughs> More later. Uh, we're also joined by space film director and writer Chris Riley as we enjoy a trip to London's impressive Moonwalkers Exhibition, oh, exhibition slash show, I guess. Yeah, um, it's hard, to, hard put, to define. It is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and we're sticking to a moon theme this week, not least because of the number of recent missions and, of course, uh, the delays to Artemis all in the last couple of months. So, look, we've got to Artemis 2 delayed to September 25 at least. Yeah. And Artemis 3 delayed till September 26 at least. Yeah. Thoughts? Well, we've been saying right from the beginning, haven't we, for years, as have people in NASA, but never on the record. Although lately, some of them were saying, you know, it's expected to slip, it's expected to slip. Nobody thought it would ever be the dates that they set out. So, you know, we're just now getting into the realms of being a bit more realistic. And I suspect it may slip even further than that, but we'll see. But what's interesting is that recently there have been suggestions that, uh, you know, from particularly from the press, I saw one report from Reuters that did call it, you know, a moon race, a moon race between uh, the US and China. And it did feel slightly contrived because, I mean, although China have announced their, you know, ambitions to to land on the moon and, and they've landed 
three times on the moon since 2013. Now, admittedly, that's, as you know, it's just with a, a robotic craft, but they have done incredible things. And their next mission, Changi 6, is, is launching in May. That's going to uh, return a, a lunar a sample. They, they've said they want to collaborate, set up a permanent um, habitat on the South Pole, but their aims is around the 2030 mark. So they're still way ahead of mm. of America. But America, you know, they got Bill Nelson, the, the NASA uh, science chief, not my dad, at the announcement for the uh, delays. He was really like, no, no, we're still going to beat them effectively. So it's obviously a touchy subject. Well, I mean, wasn't it Donald Trump? I mean, remember him, uh, who said 2025 for the moon landing, which I mean, at the time, everyone knew was unrealistic. I mean, I feel that Artemis 2 will probably happen in 25. I don't see any reason why that shouldn't, unless there is some fundamental problem with SLS Orion or the, the European service module that makes yes, that Yes, you're right. It's, it's the third one that's the one most likely to slip, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, the problem with the third one is the lander. There isn't a lander no. yet. I mean, you know, they're going to use Starship. They built two of them and they've both exploded so far, which is not unexpected. No, but and you know, as we know, it, it's, it's a sort of, um, they still performed incredibly well. Yeah, and I'm sure Starship will ultimately work. Look at you know Elon Musk's uh, track record. So we now got the Blue Origin uh, version of a, a lander, which looks more like the old-fashioned sort of moon lander. But again, untested, unflown. You know, that is, I think t- 26 is is wholly unrealistic unless you know someone puts an awful lot of money into the program and, and accelerates it. Even so, you know what we used to consider the basics, which is landing an um crewed spacecraft, a robotic spacecraft on the on the moon. There's been a few little difficulties lately. We've had the Peregrine issues. Japan's slim mission, although it landed, did a soft landing on the moon. They discovered it wasn't pointing in the right direction, the solar panels towards the sun. So that hasn't quite worked as, as expected. It is a reminder that actually... It's hard. It's the moon. I, sp- said that I mean, I found myself on World Service. You know, when you say things live, um, I was asked by uh, James Reynolds on, on BBC OS, was it a success? And I said, success-ish. That was the, the Peregrine lander. And actually, yes, that's true. it is two-thirds successful. Yes. The rocket worked. A new rocket, Vulcan rocket, that worked. Mm-hmm. The whole concept of a private mission and commissioning, rather than saying, build us a mission to do X, just riding experiments on a particular mission that a private company's operating. Well, that's worked as a model. And we're going to see that with uh, intuitive machines as well and, and several others. And mid-feb launch yeah. at the moment. Um, it's just the last bit, the actual yeah. landing on the moon that, that didn't work. And, and to be fair to them, they had control of the spacecraft mm. all the way back into the, the landing in the Pacific Ocean. But having said that, I now associate blips with any Mars missions because we know that's much more difficult. Although not anymore. But, so but, all the recent ones have uh, been a success. And, and so I just feel like, come on, you know. Loads of loads of countries have got into, you know, have orbited the moon now and uh, have done it very successfully, including India. So it, it's still well to me. I'm always like, oh my goodness, things can still not quite work as planned. Yeah, I guess and, we and do then take that it brings, for We do, and that brings Artemis into a sort of more realistic framework. That yes, the US has done this and done it before. 
but there's been a long period of time between then and now. And the people like Jerry Griffin, who helped do it then, are not working there. Well, before we get into these interviews, I guess one brief rant. (laughs) And again, I found myself saying this on World Service. In the 1960s, with very basic space technology, you know, within just over 10 years of the first satellite in space, NASA managed to land 12 men on the moon, sent 24 to the moon, 27 in total, three twice, and all came back alive. The whole missions were successful. Extraordinary. And we just seem to be learning those lessons again. I find that very frustrating. There's my rant. It wasn't so much a rant, more a statement. A statement of... And a repetition of BBC World Service, which has <laughs> reminded me somewhat of one of our later interviews with a repetition more of a, a name than an organisation. But we'll, we'll leave that for you because... But it's, it's not frustrate. Does it not frustrate you? Do you not think, we did this 50 years ago? Yeah, well, yeah, that's effectively what I've just said, isn't yeah. it? But it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you can't we can't take it for granted. That's that's the thing. But we can revel in the past and what's going to happen in the in the future. And a new show opened up in London just before Christmas that wasn't in the West End because it's at the Light Room near King's Cross Station. But there was an actor attached to it, Tom. Hanks, who together with the British filmmaker Chris Riley are the co-writers of Moonwalkers, which is this immersive 50-minute documentary on huge giant screens about getting those 12 men on the moon, as well as looking ahead to the Artemis moon landings. Well, Chris has made all sorts of films, including co-producing In the Shadow of the Moon and directing the documentary First Orbit, which recreated Yuri Gagarin's space. Flight. And we spoke to Chris after our first viewing of Moonwalkers. The moon has always been our companion, right? A friendly face, a bright, reliable presence that stays in our orbit no matter what. A guide that helps keep us on our axis. Every human being who ever lived on the planet Earth looked up at the moon. And it's given us our seasons. It's given us our day, the length of our month. And we've been moved by it. Okay, we will talk about the film, but what was it like to work with Tom Hanks? <laughs> well, I mean, what can I say? I still can't quite believe I did. And so I keep having to pinch myself even right now, and the show's been on a month. And so we're well into it, right? <laughs> it still feels unbelievable. I think I remember the first time he kind of walks into the room here, actually in this building downstairs where, where you've just seen the show. And it, it just also felt, on one hand, like totally incredible, because he's been in my life all my as long as I can kind of remember seeing films and stuff. On the other hand, it was like meeting someone who you've known for years. He's like an uncle, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, everyone's very familiar with him. And it's a bit weird if you're him, I think, probably. But for us, it felt comfortable immediately. And he's such a generous, lovely collaborator. So he was a joy to work with. I've seen that he has a love of old typewriters. I just have this vision of you sending him emails and him doing a... You know, as you co-write it, how did that process work? <laughs> uh, well, we didn't write it on a, in courier font on a typewriter. I'm sorry to say, because that could have been quite fun, couldn't yeah. it? I also loved his uh, his book on typewriter stories. Yes. Yeah, so, to answer your question, I suppose it was kind of a, a bit of an organic way of writing, and by that I mean that 
Um, as you know now, having seen the show, it's partly kind of biographical a little bit, really. It's, it's both the story of Apollo and the moon and our relationship with the moon today, with the, with the Artemis missions going back. But it's partly about Tom's connection to it when he was 13 years old in the 1960s, watching it as a kind of eager, avid sort of consumer of that kind of period of history. And to get those bits to work authentically, we really just sat around in a room with a tape recorder and chatted to him about it and that's how we wrote it by talking actually and you can tell that in the room because it feels very natural it does yeah absolutely yeah i I was going to say that doesn't sound because the danger of these sorts of things is that they particularly narration it can become quite ponderous and here is a narrator saying great things and we, we say this as somebody who heard the richard burton from like decades ago, do the Giza Sphinx narration from a hotel opposite the pyramids last year. And that was probably the most ponderous thing we've ever heard in our lives. Wow. <laughs> I think it was, it felt like the time it took the pyramids to be built. <laughs> That's not a good thing. But, so uh, again, you know, you got that, it does sound conversational. Yeah, and I think the room, it's important in the Lightroom to to do that. I mean, this is only the second show that's been created for this space here in London. This is after the Hockney one. Yeah, so Hockney was the first one that played for most of last year, 2023. And if you saw that, that, you'll appreciate that that was also quite conversational. It was like a sort of stream of consciousness from the mind of Hockney looking back on his life and reflecting on what his art meant to him and to a more universal truth about our own perceptions of what the world looks and feels like to all of us. And, you know, that worked very well there. And one of the things I remember Tom saying early on was he wanted it to be more Hockney and less History Channel. And that wasn't ah. to, to, you know, to be derogatory about the History Channel, but that was a different style where it was kind of voice of God commentary, ponderous stuff like the pyramids, <laughs> like you just talked about. Um, and instead it was more Hockney. And by that he meant this kind of reflective, thoughtful, conversational style. Don't you love you can now drop that into conversation, as Tom was telling me? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, my family have got totally sick of me saying that. Cause <laughs> was it your idea? or I can, uh, My guess would be it was your idea. No. Well, oh. well, actually, um, no, I can't take the credit for, for this show. Although I came to see this building when it was a building site before, um, before Hockney was on here, um, because I'd worked with 59 Productions before. In fact, in 2019, we projected part of this story onto the Washington Monument for the... Apollo 11 50th anniversary and sort of launched this life-size Saturn V off, off the, um, that, the, the monument in, in DC. And so they'd, they'd gathered all of their collaborators over the years, including me, to come to the building site and go, what could we do here? And of course, Apollo was a kind of obvious idea, but it needed more than just that idea to, to, to become a kind of commercial thing. So in fact, um, because David Hockney's quite well connected, he brought Tom along one, one night to see the show. And I wasn't there that night. And Tom walked in as Hockney's kind of painting around the room because he paints on iPads and they'd commissioned particular pieces of art that could unfold around us. And you, it felt to Tom like you were in one of Hockney's paintings. And he turned and he said to Richard Slaney, who runs the, the Lightroom here, he said, you know, you could walk on the moon in here. And that was the beginning of a conversation. And actually, it needs a big name like 
like Tom, as well as a great story, in order for it to be viable. And so the two things came together. The stars aligned and here we are. And you also have those wonderful remastered photographs that Andy Saunders did. And we had Andy on on the podcast um, last year. And there were times when you're seeing some of these images projected on such a massive space and wall that you suddenly realise, wow, as you say, the stars had aligned because if that hadn't been so beautifully remastered, it wouldn't look so amazing and make you feel like you're in it. It it didn't look like a historical document. It looked fresh. It's true, Sue. You're really right about that. What's extraordinary about this archive, and you know I've worked with it for decades and I'm very familiar with it, is that it has stood the test of time. So whether it's those um, medium format negatives that Andy Saunders has done such an incredible job of restoring and bringing new life to, um, or the 16mm film footage that I've uh, immersed myself in many times over the years, because it's all been sort of stored in cold storage in Houston under liquid nitrogen, as I understand, it's pristine. And you bring out those negatives all these decades later and uh, somehow they were kind of future-proofed in the, the choice of film and emulsion that was used at that time and the resolution because it stands up to what downstairs in the Lightroom here is a 27K screen, effectively. It's bigger than IMAX. And as you saw just now, it's, yeah. it projects so realistically and pretty crisply. Yeah. Um, And the thing I love about being in that room when you see Andy's work up there is that the sky is black and there is this sun because they do some clever things with the lights in in the ceiling above without diminishing what's on the walls. And you get that sense, which is very unusual, only 12 humans have really experienced this, of standing on a brightly lit world with the sun burning, shining bright in a black sky. And Andy's restoration of that, those stills pictures, really makes that come alive in there. It does pack an emotional punch, doesn't it? I mean, has has, has there been a point where you can step back and, and appreciate that or were you so oh my god I've got to I've got to find 20 images that fill this wall then I've got to find another 20 and another 20 and, yes exactly you know was there a point you could actually appreciate that well, I only wrote this show or co-wrote it with with, with Tom. So actually, was what, it with Tom by any chance? Uh, yeah, did, I, did I mention that? What <laughs> name dropping? I have to say that contractually because I, if I say I wrote it, then then uh, I, get, I get sued by Tom. I'm only teasing. <laughs> you know, I'm teasing. Kidding. Yeah. So I co-wrote it with someone I won't mention, uh, and um, and so I didn't have to worry about the pictures. Actually, I mean, I. I handed over my archive to to everyone here and there were two directors on on the show that were really, it was a big headache for them because you give them thousands of pieces of media and then they have to kind of condense it down to at least hundreds. Um, And to fill the room like that was a proper kind of mind-bending exercise of editing. I mean, I'm used to editing for pretty linear single-screen stories as a filmmaker and uh, you suddenly have like dozens of video channels simultaneously and they're very good at doing that they've done a few shows now you know with multiple screens of course uh, around the world and so I left all of that choice of pictures to them largely I'd occasionally kind of nudged them have you seen that one have you thought of that one there but largely it was their decision so I could then concentrate on the story and I think you know we were reflecting on this uh, in the in the room afterwards it's it's kind of a dark time at the moment sort of if you watch the news it's things are bleak right you know and so we wanted a story that was somehow uplifting and yes emotional and connected us with a a 
greater universal truth about the similarities between us as a human family rather than the differences, which is largely what's what's dwelt on in the news at the moment, sadly. And that really tumbles naturally out of the story of Apollo, as you guys know, because you've told it often before. Yeah, I must admit, I I was almost moved to tears at at the end because it just felt so optimistic. And and as you say, it it was a reflection of the best of humanity, whereas it feels like all we've seen over the last 12 months and more is the worst of humanity. And so from that extent, it, it suddenly makes you proud to be a member of the human race again, as opposed to feeling rather ashamed. I agree. Yes, we all feel ashamed, I think, at the moment, largely. And the thing that struck us often in working on this project was, of course, that um, the moon landings, and particularly the first moon landing, were such a rare moment in human history that it was something largely positive. Yes, it was the Cold War, but it honestly wasn't a military project in that sense, and there was no military advantage to landing a human being on the moon. But it was one of the few, maybe only things in human history where we all remembered where we were, if you were kind of alive at that time and saw it, um, that wasn't negative. Mm. You know, everything else is largely either an assassination, President Kennedy perhaps, or the, the, the tragic death too young of Princess Diana or something like that, that, that they're all, all, all wars and things like we're suffering from too much at the moment and that and this was not that this was something positive as you beautifully put it that made us proud to be part of the human race and i like the way you've start with artemis and the return to the moon and that's threaded throughout so it doesn't become and just a historical event History channel again yeah yeah <laughs> yes well you know it felt like too much of a gift to be making this show at this time where, you know, incredibly 2024 is about the busiest, even busier than the 60s time for moon landings. Um, almost all robotic missions now, I suspect uh, Artemis 2 will slip a little bit into 2025. Mm. But it's something like 24 missions slated to, to go to the moon. Now, they probably won't, won't all fly, but it's super busy right now. The, the, the world has turned again to look at the moon for different reasons than last time. And humans are, uh, are going to go back. And that just felt like too good an opportunity to miss, really. So the hard bit, actually, and we struggled with this for months, was weaving those two stories together and making it feel pretty seamless rather than stalling the Apollo story, which gallops along if you tell it in one big jump, to then step back and reflect on Artemis and what it means and why we're doing it, and then catapult us into back into the Apollo story. And that took quite a lot of experimenting and fiddling around with and re-rewriting re- re- it. And I think what we've ended up with works. I think um, we started with a lot more Artemis in it, actually, than we've got now. And we spent two days in Houston with Tom actually filming with the Artemis crews and experiencing a lot of what they were doing there. And when we tried that footage in the room, it just felt wrong. As soon as you see a very big person walking across the screen and it it very quickly became just, just a documentary, albeit quite a nice one, but that's not what this room's about. So almost like one of those NASA planetarium type shows. Yeah, I guess so. And it, this had to be something that was different to that. This wasn't just four different documentaries playing on four walls and the floor. This was something else. That room is a is, it has a different feel and rhythm and emotional tone to it that you have to lean into. And if you fight it, it does not work. It does not it's not forgiving that room. 
<laughs> so you've got a whole. You could do a whole director's cut of Tom interviewing the Artemis astronauts. What are you going to do with that? Or that, oh, that would be the um, what they call the the, the, the extras. Or, or the extras yes, or the behind extras. the scenes. Yeah. yeah, I think a bit of that. We're we're making a behind the scenes um, film at the moment, uh, um, and so there will be bits of that in that in there. I suspect, and also there's a whole big social media team here that are you know trying to keep this story fresh in all our minds so that people keep coming to see it and so they're not short of material (laughs) and are you get you know you want to reach beyond people like us don't you with this, in the same way, obviously, the Hockney Although, obviously, reaches. I suspect to be pretty pleased Space Boffins listeners will want it. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah, <laughs> you want all the Space Boffins <laughs> listeners, but you also want everyone to come to this, don't you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be a commercial prospect, and it's not cheap to make these things and to run them, you know, you have to have something that has a universal appeal. It, yeah, it can't just appeal to a, a core, and albeit, you know, I'm part of this niche audience, you know. Um, it had to be wider than that. And I think we get there probably in two ways. One is one is the person I'm not allowed to mention anymore. <laughs> no, you can mention him. <laughs> one, one, can... one is Tom. It sounds like Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, <you> do that. <laughs> yes. one, one, is, one is, of course, Tom Hanks, because he's much loved and a kind of international treasure. And, and he brings an audience that, you know, doesn't necessarily just know Apollo 13. It's an audience that just love to spend time with him and enjoy his company, you know, whether it's Woody or Forrest Gump, you know, he come and spend an hour with Woody or Forrest Gump, you know, if you like that. So that was part of it. But the other reason that it's kind of universal, I think uh, some of these themes we, we've discussed just now about it being something more of a universal truth about what it means to be human. And, and that, that is a powerful thing that everyone should be interested in. Chris Riley, co-writer of London's Moonwalkers exhibition with Tom Hanks, of course. Uh, you're listening to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. One of the cool things about making this podcast is the people you get to meet and interview. What few, Rich? What has been a couple of your highlights? Well, the Gene Cernan interviews. Gene yeah. Cernan and Al Warden. But also all the current European Space Agency astronauts who are so much more unfiltered, yeah. I would say, <laughs> than the NASA astronauts or the, the serving NASA astronauts. Yeah. Uh, the only time I'd say the exception to that was the program made on astronauts and religion, where the NASA astronauts were completely open and talking personally. So that really felt that it was coming from the heart rather than through a sort of NASA NASA PR machine. So that was that was a real pleasure to just hear people's you know very deepest feelings about how they feel about you know our our place in the universe and things so that was pretty awesome it's always the personal stories that do it for me i really found mike mullane riding rocket sky meeting him that was amazing well again it's unfiltered isn't it unfiltered i like people like that they could be a delight like nicole stott shuttle astronaut and an artist I mean, I have got one sort of personal highlight. I don't think I fully appreciated at the time was, um, you know, I got to meet and interview Alan Bean, you know, astronaut and artist in his... Yeah, I remember uh, you coming yeah, back yeah. saying, raving yeah, about him. Yeah, in, yeah. His, in his studio. Yeah, and he gave me a, a copy of his, his, his book, book, which he signed, which, you know, so just, um, yeah, and he was lovely. And I, I think, you know, everyone said, what a lovely 
a lovely person he was. I mean, you know, you don't, they don't have to be lovely, astronauts, no. because, you know, no. as long as they do a decent job. Well, Tim Peake and Samantha Christopheretti are, are lovely. Are great yeah. fun, yeah. And I would aren't say they? I had, we do have yeah. our favourites. I would say all the, all the current band are yeah. absolutely. And I enjoyed uh, interviewing um, Helen Sharman. Yeah, no, she's, she's always absolutely yeah. charming. Yeah. Um, just because also she gives you something different, because hers was a you know a mission, Soviet with mission. A, with a Soviet mission, yeah. exactly, yeah. and a private mission. So it's great. And as you know, one opportunity often leads to another, and that's exactly what happened when we uh, went to Moonwalkers or planned to go to Moonwalkers and meet with uh, Chris Riley. When we were informed that a former NASA Apollo mission flight director would also be at that showing and that we could interview him afterwards. Now, I have met him before and he's been another one of these naturally lovely people. Flight director when astronauts Pete Conrad and Alan Bean walked on the moon. And he was also part of the now infamous SCE to Orcs rescue on Apollo 12. Mission sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 11.22 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Apollo 12, Houston, try FCE to auxiliary, over. NCE to auxiliary. FCE, FCE to auxiliary. Well, after watching Moonwalkers, we sat down with this legendary Apollo flight director who was dressed in a pale blue bomber jacket encrusted with mission patches. And um, I'm going to let the man himself do the, the introduction. Jerry Griffin, former flight director in Apollo for the Gold Team, and uh, and then later the uh, director of the Johnson Space Center in later years. Well, first of all, Jerry, we've got to find out what you thought of Moonwalkers. I must say, it was a real thrill to be watching it sat next to you. Well, it was. I found it to be very inspiring. It, it was a lot of information. Mm. And I think it was easier for those of us that were part of the program to kind of stay up. And I, it may take two or three showings of somebody that's not real familiar, but that's okay. And um, I, th- I thought it was well, well done, and the photography uh, uh, was really, really nice, really nice. And I thought one of the things that really impressed me was the, uh, the sliced rocks that had been uh, photographed through a microscope um, and the color and a lot of people always think of the moon as being that gray um, almost white in some cases uh, dust on the top and uh, to see that beauty coming from those rocks is pretty neat now during the show i suppose we can call it a show there is a sort of guttural roar of a Saturn V rocket going up. Were you always in mission control for all the Apollo missions, or did you ever get to see a Saturn V launch? I was in mission control for every uh, (laughs) Saturn launch in Apollo. I did get to see the Skylab launch, and I was in a different job at that point, and it it was really neat to be seeing it firsthand and feeling that, that rumble and roar and... And uh, it's exciting. I think it's the most exciting part of the mission. It's also, I also think it's one of the most dangerous parts because you get so much energy 
and trying to hold all that hardware together and make it work. You can hear a rumble, actually. That is extraordinary. We, yeah. I was looking at the time, and um, the <laughs> Richard, who runs this place, said, at a quarter past the hour, you get the rumble of the Saturn rumble, V. So we're actually, as talking about it, it, that's what we're hearing, <laughs> and we are a couple of stories up from the actual uh, cinema itself. And it just took a, a volume step down because it's getting farther away. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. We can feel it here. We're talking about it. While, while that's taking place. What amazed me is it still packed an emotional punch for me. Yeah. Uh, did, it, did it for it, you? It did for me. I thought the, uh, the Saturn launch of Apollo 11, I told uh, the guys downstairs, I said, I really think that uh, I noticed that more than anything. It was, go, go. As it was, come on, come on, go. And... Uh, yeah, that was cool. Really nice. There's a very neat section <laughs> in the film. I suppose it's a film. It yeah, feels more like an immersive that. experience where we are all sitting in Mission Control because the room yeah. we were sitting in watching this film is more or less the same size as Mission Control. Right. How, how did that feel to you? It was. They made an excellent point when they said that. You know, the, the Saturn launch, for instance was controlled by the Launch Control Center at the Cape. And it had 500 people in it, almost. We had about 23 positions. It wasn't as large, uh, but we had rooms outside that that were supporting uh, us in the middle. And uh, so I thought it it was a great point that the theater or the place, the show place, it was very much the same size is Mission Control. It was a little smaller, but not much. I like the way you're wearing this rather fetching blue bomber jacket with the American flag patch on one arm. You've you've got NASA on your right arm. You've got a Mission Control patch, a Jerry Griffin gold flight director on... on I was going to say label, but it's not. It's it's actually sewn into your... Yeah. Um, your jacket and a pin, a gold pin on the top right. there. Are these all from that era? Yes, all of this was was pretty um, common on astronaut flight jackets. And toward the end of the Apollo program, this uh, pin was designed by a local guy, and we actually bought them ourselves. Nowadays, they present them to new flight directors. And there's a lot less flight directors than there are astronauts, so they're kind of unique. I think we just named the 102nd astronaut or uh, flight director. I'm sorry, that's ever been, ever been named. And could and, you describe what's on the pin? For well, it, it it's a little bit like the astronaut pin in that it, you know it's you get a sensation of looking up, and and the critical part is the very top so I really think it, it's symbolic of, of energy and space and looking upward. It's and, quite modern and, isn't it it's yeah. like a sort of that V yeah. shape which you get it, on the NASA logo with yeah. a star at the and top and a circle around it. The overall shape is very much like the astronaut pen. That was not intended by the guy that did it. He was not a, uh, he was not a mission controller and he wasn't an astronaut he was just a jeweler that made it and uh, we bought it for had to buy them, and uh, nowadays they give them away. So, <laughs> I suppose that 
within the film and within how we understand what happened with Apollo, mission control is now understood to be so crucial that you were so important. It is. And one of the reasons we had a lot more data on the ground than they had in their gauges and things that they could see. So it was a team effort, a very close team. Most of our kids grew up together, so we were together not only at work, but schools and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was a very friendly atmosphere and, and uh, more friendly with some, just like any other group, than others. And uh, and it depended. We we lived in different housing area, you know, areas of the community. And uh, those of us that lived in a place called Nassau Bay were guys like like uh, Dave Scott and Al Bean and Walt Cunningham and Buzz and and uh, and then the older guys. Eh, we weren't the all old because Neil uh, Armstrong and his family lived down in place called El Lago, probably a mile and a half from our place. And we didn't see them as much. So the people that we saw a lot of each other, there were flight controllers everywhere, um, we were a close-knit bunch. And and it did take all of us to get it done. And for instance, uh, when lightning hit on, on Apollo 12, and I happened to be the flight director uh uh, we depended on each other, and John Aaron made that SEC to Ox call that <laughs> pulled it out. And uh, so it was a very tr- – we trusted each other and enjoy- we enjoyed each other's uh, companionship. I must ask a question about that, the SCE to Ox. As flight director, did you know about that, that button? I never heard of the switch. <laughs> But I trusted John Aaron when he said, try SCE to Ox. And I turned, Jerry Carr was the uh, Capcom, and I turned to Jerry. He was looking, John was one more down looking at me, and then here's Carr wanting to know what to tell the crew. And when I said, have him try SCE to Ox, and I could see Jerry, he didn't know what it was either. And uh, so he called it up. And he said, S-C-E to Ox, and Conrad repeated it and said, N-C-E to Ox. Pete didn't know what it was, and Dick Gordon didn't, but Al Bean did. And finally, and it was a switch right in front of him. We had never dealt with it in a simulation, nothing. It went from normal to auxiliary, signal conditioning equipment to auxiliary. And as soon as we did, we got all the data back, and, and it came out fine. But that was a good example of where... You really knew the people you were working with, and you trusted them, and there was there was a camaraderie and a, a feeling that, uh, you know, all we can do is the best we can, and that was the best shot we had, and we took it. And that just shows the, the training as yeah. well, doesn't it, with that? Because I guess, the, I guess thinking of myself, that flight director, you get this call, we've lost all power. Yeah. I mean, w- yeah. what goes through your mind? Well... It's funny, it, it, you know, you'd think there was a moment of panic. There was never panic. It was more of a, hell, what happened here? You know, and trying you to figure... You knew before word, but I didn't think I started to say something else. <laughs> but but it, uh, we, it was more of a, let's fix it. We've got to find a solution quick. Either that or we've got to abort. And my, my first thought was, 
looks like we may have to abort, but we were right on trajectory and we're gaining altitude, so you don't want to abort early. And uh, we just kept going. And, and you know, after we, we got into orbit, then we had to make a decision on whether to go on to the moon or not. And, uh, and again, that was my decision because of the TLI, or my team's decision, uh, because of the decision to ignite the engine again on the S-4 and go to the moon. And we did everything we could to check out spacecraft systems. They all look good. Uh, we couldn't find anything wrong after we got all power reestablished. So we said, let's go. We, and you know what? That was the cleanest mission after that point of any mission we had. Fewer failures, anomalies, things that we had to document. And later the program office goes back and finds out what they were. Uh, in detail to see if they can repeat them. Um, 12 was the cleanest mission we ever had. But it's off to a very bad start. <laughs> and uh, my voice on the flight director loop got about an octave higher. Uh, it returned to normal when we got the data back, or close to normal. And by the time we got to orbit, I, we, were, uh, we were laughing about some of the, and so was the crew, uh, laughing about, did you see this? It's kind of like a near accident in an auto, and everybody gets kind of silly. Yeah. Um, so anyway. It's relief, isn't it? You've had such an amazing career, including being director of the Johnson Space Center. But what would you say is that key moment for you, looking back as, wow, I was there, I did this, I was part of this. Yes. Was it the, the sort of the post-flight director career, or was it that period no, or something that, during that period? Definitely the period of Apollo was was the best I felt about anything we ever did. And uh, and I did, uh, even in the private sector afterwards. Uh, it was it was uh, a heck of a ride, and, and, and we, we did it, you know, we, we kept Kennedy's goal of doing it within that decade and that was not easy yeah yeah and there were references obviously during the 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 show there about artemis how do you feel about going back when you've already been there seen it bought the t-shirt saved lives you know had a good time been relieved i'm ready i I think artemis artemis is a wonderful i'm right in the middle of trying to help as much as I can to promote it. And uh, it's time we get back. We had a, we've had we had this long break in, in uh, deep space human. We've done well in the uh, robotic world, but in uh, the human exploration in deep space, it's been at a standstill now for a long time. I'm worried about the funding. It's going to always be a problem. But, uh, and I tell you what, that crew that you saw in the show... I know all of them now. Well, I have met Hanson, but I, I, I've known Christina for a long time. Rita, known even longer. So you, you got the best. They are really, really good, and uh, we'll be fine. But we got to get going. The wonderful Jerry Griffin, and thanks to Vix Southgate and Chris Riley for setting up that meeting. It reminded me a little bit of the Van Gogh immersive 
exhibition that um, I've I've been to in London. I mean, Chris earlier mentioned about the the Hockney and and the Van Gogh one in London is incredible, where you feel a part of it. In, in that case, you've got the artwork moving, so you have starry, starry nights swirling in front of you uh, and above your head. But in this case, it was I think the sheer scale of it wasn't it of having. At times, and it was brilliant to be sat next to Jerry Griffin with images. You of, were very excited. I was about very that. excited <laughs> with, of, with images of Mission Control on these huge screens. As Chris said, it's like an IMAX screen, but it's all around you. It's on four walls, not just one and, in front and of you. And the ceiling, and uh, not the ceiling, but and the yeah. floor as well. Yeah. So, so you felt at that point, it felt like we were sitting in Mission Control, and I was tearful at the end because I was there next to Jerry Griffin and I knew that there were people sitting in the dark with us but unaware that there was a guy who has worked in this mission control sitting there amongst them. I felt so lucky, no, so lucky. Uh, and the other good thing about it, and we only watched it once, but you can actually just stay there. Oh, you yes. You can watch, you know, so you can pay. So it's, I can't remember, it's not It's not cheap, but you can it's pay. About 20 or 25 pounds. Something, or something like that, like yeah. That. So, but you can stay and carry on and go and watch watch I mean, another show. Wasn't one of your yeah, friends. Yeah, one of my friends has watched it about six times. <laughs> he just sat there, he just spent the day there, um, immersing himself in, in the whole thing. He's, he's such an and, Apollo and to be fair. If we hadn't had the interviews to do afterwards, I would have stayed to watch it yeah, again. Yeah, because you, you can appreciate more. Yeah. There's so many images as well, all the way around. You. Yeah, so well, you do cr- feel you're on the moon. And so in summary, it's great. Yeah, let's say my one regret is we couldn't sit through it and watch it again. Yeah. But that's more than <laughs> more than made up for the fact that we got to meet and chat to the lovely Chris Riley and um, Jerry Griffin. I'm afraid we can't guarantee you'll get to sit next to a <laughs> Apollo flight director when you go and see it. But uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely highly highly rec- highly recommended, which is why we've devoted this podcast to it. Mm, and you don't have to be, I think Chris was right saying you don't have to be a space fan to love it it's just something that's worth seeing and learning about yeah, take your and family about and yeah. just just think wow it's, yeah. it's quite an experience so you've, you've probably got friends and family who think what is this space thing all about yes exactly <laughs> and did humans really land on the moon then take them to this absolutely do get in touch with any thoughts about space boffins you can email podcast at spaceboffins.com i've got some thoughts <laughs> yeah. i don't want to hear <laughs> or get in touch with us here at boffin media you can also follow us on twitter and facebook we'll be back next month thanks for listening <laughs>